Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Thursday. It's February 1st, 32 degrees here in Old Town Park City under cloudy skies. On the phone with us now from the ABC Forecast Center, we've got meteorologist Thomas Giboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Thursday to you. We're on this Friday Eve. Over the last few days, it has not felt like winter around Park City or just across the Beehive State in general. But as we go through the next 24 to 48 hours, we're finally going to be moving back in the direction where it's going to be feeling like winter once again, which is definitely a good thing because we'll be adding more snow to the equation to our mountains. But today it's going to be that transition day. We have a storm system that's approaching from the west and moisture will be increasing as we go through the day. So we're starting off with mostly cloudy skies right now. But as we go through the first half of the day, we'll likely check in with partly to mostly cloudy skies and temperatures will climb from around freezing right now in Park City, likely into the low and mid 40s by the time we get to around midday into the early portion of this afternoon. But once we get into this afternoon, as the moisture starts to increase across the state, the chance of wet weather will start to increase. And by this afternoon, we'll be looking at roughly a 40 percent chance of seeing wet weather in Park City and with the daytime high likely in the low to mid 40s. We'll have a chance of seeing rain, a wintry mix, and then maybe by this evening transitioning over to straight snow. So that potential of seeing rain does exist in Park City as that snow line today is likely going to start off around or maybe above 7,500 feet. By tonight, the overnight low in Park City dropping to 32, and by that point, we'll likely be seeing widespread showers across the state, an 80 to 90 percent chance of seeing rain and then eventually snow tonight in Park City. And then for our Friday, daytimes will be much closer to where they should be for this time of year as we're going to hold on to a good chance of wet weather through the day, roughly 90 percent chance. It's probably not going to snow all day, but it could come in waves, so something to keep in mind. Could be looking at some issues out on the roadways, especially later tonight into our Friday across the Wasatch back. And thanks to that northwesterly flow, that will eventually kick in. Instead of seeing a daytime high in the low to mid-40s, we'll mainly see a daytime high tomorrow in Park City of 35 degrees. We'll drop to 27 degrees on Friday night. Still a really good chance, 80-90% chance of seeing additional snow. And snow showers look to be possible and more likely than not on Saturday once, as, once again as well. With that best chance likely coming during the first half of the day with a daytime high, that might not even climb above freezing. Right now we'll go with a daytime high of 31 degrees in Park City, which is a lot more like it. Then the chance of snow will gradually dwindle as we go from the second half of Saturday into Saturday night, resulting in a seasonal and calm day on Sunday with a daytime high around 33 degrees under partly sunny skies in Park City. But it looks like we're going to do the same song and dance of what we're going to do the next few days going into early next week as the chance of snow will be increasing in the Wasatch back by the time we get into Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday with what could be another atmospheric river event. And that could result in daytime highs maybe pushing up a little bit more, maybe mid to upper 30s, close to 40 degrees as Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday all bring roughly a 50 to 60 percent chance of snow as overnight lows will be in the mid to upper 20s. As we go through the next few days, we do have winter weather advisories in place for the Wasatch Mountains calling for around 10 to 18 inches of snow. But I think that's mainly going to be 8000 feet and above. But through Saturday could see roughly five to 10 inches, I'm thinking for Park City Mountain and around Deer Valley. So we're bringing back snow and we're moving in the right direction. But this is definitely a long, long waited after our warm stretch of weather we've had, Leslie. OK, it sure has been. Thanks so much, Thomas. You're welcome. And with a look in the backcountry and the fun with us from the Utah Avalanche Center, we've got Trent. Good morning, Trent. Hey, good morning. Um, so the Avalanche Center, uh, we have issued an avalanche watch for Southwest Utah. And what this means is that within about 24 hours, we expect to go to an avalanche warning. 
Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning it, mentioning it over the air now is just help us spread the word. Uh, basically, the mountains south uh, of us are pretty dangerous. I was down there maybe 10 days ago, and there is just weak snow everywhere. And now we're going to add, you know, heavy snow and strong winds uh, to that snowpack down there, and it's going to create dangerous avalanche conditions. So just a heads up uh, for around the state there, that the southwest Utah area. This includes like terrain around Bryan Head Ski Resort and the sur surrounding areas. Um, yeah, the weather report, times are changing here and uh, we're expecting some new snow um, pretty much this afternoon through Sunday. Uh, it looks like up there in the hills it could stack up 10 to 20 inches of snow and then buckle up another windy wet storm begins on Monday. Um, you know, yesterday was kind of a tale of a, well, a, a totally different story out there in the mountains. Um, on Tuesday, we had a close call in Upper Days Fork with a catch and carry, and then um, tons of wet avalanche activity. And then yesterday, I had one observation in, in the queue. So uh, what seems to be a very quiet day yesterday in terms of avalanches. But moving forward, we still... Um, you know, Leslie and everyone, sorry to keep mentioning it day in, day out, but we do have weak snow with a strong slab over top. Um, you know, yes, there's tracks everywhere. I see them. I've been on the Park City Ridgeline, um, but I'm still staying away from steep uh, slopes, especially the ones uh, facing the north half of the compass. To me, triggering an avalanche that's like three to five feet deep, couple hundred feet wide and as hard as a rock um, is just something I personally don't want to do. And so while the avalanche danger might be moderate for this avalanche problem and plenty of people are riding avalanche terrain and not triggering avalanches, for me, I'm still just stepping back and letting our snowpack heal up. And that would be my suggestion for anybody listening today. And just remember, if you're heading out of the ski area and you're exiting one of those exit points, you are stepping right into that moderate danger for that persistent weak layer. The, the next issue we're going to face today is just some wind-drifted snow. There's not much snow available for transport, so just meaning that those southerly facing aspects, they were cooked and melted over the past few days. They're going to be like an ice crust this morning, and that wind just doesn't have much snow to transport. But man, alive, Deer Valley, Mount Baldy blowing like 30 to 40 miles per hour up there. And I'm always amazed at what the wind can do and find and drift that snow onto those lee aspects up there. So if you're going to be out and about traveling along the ridgelines, be on the lookout for shallow, soft and hard slabs of wind drifted snow. And really, in summary, today, the avalanche danger is moderate. Again, two avalanche problems. One exists on those shady aspects for triggering a two to five foot thick hard slab avalanche that fails on our buried weak and faceted snow. And then the other would be around the compass up in those upper elevation ridgelines, moderate avalanche danger for wind drifted snow. So, and then again, avalanche watch with the possibility of an avalanche warning for the south half of the state here moving into the weekend. Okay, thanks so much, Trent. Thank you. Good morning. This is the KPCW Local News Hour. I'm Leslie Thatcher. Stay tuned. In just a minute, we'll be checking in with Summit County Council Member Chris Robinson. Later on, the Director of Exhibits and Visitor Experience for the Swanner Nature Preserve, Hunter Klingensmith, has details on the new exhibit that's gone up there. And the former Director of Women's Inspired Network, Kathleen Barlow, introduces new Director Kirsten Gunrud, talking about the upcoming re-emerging meeting that's happening next week. 
Then stay tuned for Cool Science Radio. Today's guests include Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has co-written the book To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery. And as much as you might think it's just a craving, sugar is an addiction. Neuroscientist Dr. Nicole Avina, who has pioneered research on sugar addiction, has a new book on the subject called Sugarless. All of that coming up on Cool Science Radio. And of course, you can hear Cool Science Radio every Thursday morning from 9 to 10. Well, the Summit County Council met yesterday and on the phone with the recap council member Chris Robinson. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Leslie. Um, interviewing applicants for two recreation districts, 15 applicants for Basin Recs Board with just three vacancies, a completely different story in North Summit, three vacancies, only two applicants. So are you still taking applicants applications for the North Summit Board if anyone's interested out there? Absolutely. Okay. I should say, though, it's amazing. We, we interviewed half of the Snyderville Basin applicants, and they were all excellent. I don't know what the second half looks like, but we have two that are reapplying. We have three vacancies, as you mentioned, but a great pool to, to choose from. Great. Uh, Council also got a legislative update from Deputy County Manager Jana Young. She talked about the proactive efforts to expand how Summit County can use the transient room tax as well as the resort uh, city, uh, cities, uh, communities tax. So what's the hope here that you will have additional funding for tourism impacts? Well, yes, but it's real early. Uh, I, I, we're not holding our breath on that just yet. But yes, that would be the reason. Okay. Uh, County Manager Shane Scott mentioned on Tuesday the efforts to revise the HTRZ legislation that stands for um, Housing and Transit Reinvestment Zone, basically a tool to finance development. It could help finance development on Dakota Pacific's property. So any changes you're looking to make? Um, the uh, changes to the HTRZ, we, you know what, it was sort of weaponized against us before. It was weaponized against us before uh, in the previous session. We obviously want to take that language out. And uh, it, as you have undoubtedly gathered, we're meeting twice a week in an effort to uh, discover what, if anything, can be settled with the Dakota Pacific situation and making modifications to the HTRZ may be helpful in that. So it's sort of a work in process. Well, let's just kind of jump ahead then. Those meetings on the Dakota Pacific real estate development continue until the final opportunity for public comment on Thursday, February 15th. That's going to happen at 6 p.m. at Ecker Hill Middle School. A decision then expected the following Tuesday, February 20th, being held at a special meeting at 6 o'clock at the Sheldon Richens Building. So what do you know that it's just not, not being shared with us in terms of why a decision has to be made this month well I, I don't think a decision has to be made this month uh but we we would like to have a decision made during the legislative session if possible in the event that we can get legislative help which the, the legis leaders of legis the legislature have offered in order to uh you know, make some of the big, the heavy lifts that would be required to improve 224 if we were going to, if we were going to, uh, you know, approve a project, we've got to resolve the transportation. And so it, they kind of go hand in hand. So 
<clears throat> what's the legislature talking about in terms of legislative help? I mean, how much heavy lifting are they going to do? Well, that remains to be seen. But uh, you may recall that the legislature uh, asked if both parties, if there was a way to to work together to find a, a solution. And, and so instead of, uh, you know, fighting against us, they're there's a possibility of their working with us, and that's what we're trying to explore. <clears throat> so it, the, the solution to this development is uh, fixing 224? No, not. Uh, I, I think uh, the two biggest uh, challenges to the Dakota application are traffic and congestion and and deciding what appropriate uses are and so uh 224 is a state road and in order to uh you know we can't do anything about it and so we need state help in order to do that and that's where the legislature comes in all right and what how that how that usually works right udot has a what's called a stip list basically a plan for the next 10 years 224 is not on that list so just somehow if, if Summit County makes a decision on this, that we would find 224 on that stip list? Well, that's, that's a possibility. You know, there's a lot going on at the state that call attention to this with the likelihood of a 2034 Olympics and other reasons why fixing 224 should be a high priority for the state. <clears throat> um, you recall the Olympics back in '02. Um, we didn't have traffic problems at all because what we did was basically keep everybody out in these large parking lots. So why does 224 have to be fixed for the Olympics? I mean, we could keep people out at Eckery Hill and, and other places from that and, uh, again, require them to get on a bus and come into town. I, I, I think that's probably true, but I think the Olympics offer a catalyst for getting other good work done that is necessary anyway. All right. Uh, let's see. Back to the agenda uh, and the legislative uh, update. House Bill 180, short-term rental amendments. This would regulate short-term rentals more closely, including making sure that there are property managers within, I believe, an hour away. Uh, Jana Young said that it gives the county more power to control Airbnbs and VRBOs, but the um, Utah Association of Counties is opposed to it. Um, how come? I think she mentioned that there was uh, maybe a provision in there relating to accessory dwelling units that allowed them to be used as nightly rentals. I'm not an expert on that, but that's my recollection of what she said, and that that caused a little consternation on on UAC's part. Um, basically, that would undo some of Summit County's goals with accessory dwelling units? Well, it, it, uh, I, I think making that a blanket right, uh, you know, would not be good for most jurisdictions that want to have some control over, uh, over nightly rentals. Mm -hmm. All right, there's a bill that you spoke about regulating gravel pits. Um, how would this affect Summit County or Parley's Canyon? I don't know where the impact is. Well, the, that bill would, the, the state has defined critical infrastructure materials to be sands and gravels, and 
this, I think it's Senate Bill 172, would allow the the operators of these critical infrastructure materials to uh, expand, it would prioritize that use and allow them to expand, say, a historic small gravel operation would be able to go beyond the current parcels on which it rests and and expand and, and would give kind of preemption over other land uses and remove um, all but the most dire um, rights of uh, the land use authorities to regulate for public health, safety, and welfare. There'd have to be like some really compelling reason why we couldn't, we wouldn't allow it, like the earth is going to stop spinning or something. Mm. Um, moving on to the Klein Dolly work session, planning staff seemed very excited to present some possibilities for this 17 acres near uh, the Jeremy Ranch roundabout. Council members had some different opinions to start. So, what's your ideal use of that parcel? Well, uh, I've viewed it for a long time that it would that it ought to be some kind of uh, uh, mixed use or a place for affordable housing. We got. We got an in, uh, we got uh, some feedback. You know, Roger suggested it be made into a park. Uh, I think the staff had worked on did a very good job of presenting all sorts of options. But uh, I think it's uh, a piece on which we the county itself could be uh, involved in creating some workforce housing and affordable housing that meets low AMIs. Yeah, so you know that would that wouldn't be market uh, developer driven like so many of the projects. Uh huh. Um, and I guess how, how are we moving forward with that regional housing authority, or has that stalled? I mean, we've got Park City already it, I, doing its own projects. Yeah, I think it's stalled for a minute. I was advocating during the housing authority discussions that that we work together on a on a project, not create a new entity, but that we find something on which we could work together that actually resulted in in new affordable housing stock. The city has a pipeline of projects. The county, you know, that it that it's where it's the developer and the owner and is partnering with the private sector or doing it on its own. The county hasn't done that. And uh, I I've thought that this Klein Valley might be a great place to do something like that. All right, there were lots of in, uh, interested audience members from the private sector in yesterday's audience. Um, are developers kind of reaching out to the county at this point? I don't know which direction the reaching occurred. I think Pat Putt, our community development director, may have invited some of the development community uh, to, to see what we were talking about and, to, and give opinions. All right. They didn't give any opinions yesterday, but in the future. Okay, uh, let's see, members of the LGBTQ plus task force came and spoke about a couple of bills that Governor Cox has signed, especially one that restricts transgender Utahns from using restrooms aligning with their gender in publicly funded facilities. So uh, what's Summit County's reaction to this? I mean, do we enforce this bill at, you know, public facilities? You know, I don't know about the enforcement. I liked what Virginia Solomon recommended, which was that as we start looking at our new facilities, that we create the new generation of public restrooms that provide the safe places for all genders and that are 
uh, you know, and that solve the problem. Okay, so I guess with all new projects, I mean, is that something that we put forward in in building code? Perhaps. I mean, I, you know, we had talked about it uh, when when we were looking at a new county building out uh, by the Justice Center that we ultimately put on the back burner, but we had we had programmed in those kinds of restrooms. Okay. You know, in our own construction. But whether it becomes part of the code and mandated everywhere, that's a further discussion. All right. And then a couple of public hearings last night. One was on a temporary zoning ordinance about how subdivisions are approved in Summit County. Um, was this approved then? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the basis for that is there was a bill last session, 2023 general session, that sort of cut the planning commission and the governing body the county council the county commission out of uh out of the subdivision approval process and streamlined it and uh our staff i didn't know this until last night but our staff believed that believes that the bill is going to be modified in the 2024 general session is now ongoing and so rather than rewrite our whole code around that law that was passed last year they wanted to approve this tonight or last night which was the last day they could and give us six months to see how this session plays out which the session ends may march 1st and then they'd have five months to if nothing changes or if something does change to rewrite our codes to come into compliance so this is a temporary ordinance that complies with the february 1 deadline we had but leaves open the door uh, for any changes that may happen this session. All right. So, will this affect any developments in progress? Maybe uh, like, like Cedar no, Press. No, I would. I would. No, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, well, they have this. They, I don't think that they're even to the point to to that point yet, where where they'd be making an application that would be affected by this. All right. Anything else, Chris? You wanted to mention? No, I think you've covered it well. All right. Thank you, Chris. That's Summit County Council Member Chris Robinson. You're listening to the local news hour here on KPCW. Well, the Sonner Preserve and Eco Center has a new exhibition, and the community is invited to come see. In the studio with details is Hunter Klingensmith. She serves as Director of Exhibits and Visitor Experience. Good morning. Good morning. So the title of the exhibit is Snow, Tiny Crystals, Global Impact. Why was this something that uh, the Swanner wanted to bring to Summit County? Yeah, so um, obviously we depend pretty heavily on snow for not just our ecosystem here, but also our economy. Um, and so when I saw that this exhibit was available from the Oregon Museum of Science and Industries um, traveling exhibit service, I thought, wow, this is a perfect fit for Park City. We all love snow and to get a chance to learn a little bit more about not only the science of it, but our cultural connections and then also how we have to adapt and change um, based on what ha what's happening with climate change for snow in oh. our area. Well, it looks like it's interactive. So tell us about the exhibit. What will yeah. people see? Yeah, so the exhibit is awesome. It has four learning objectives and themes, which are falling snow, snowpack, snowscape, and melting snow. And each part of the exhibit, I think there are 13 pieces within the exhibit. Every part has an interactive element. One of my favorites is, um, so in the falling snow section, you learn about snow crystals and how they change with temperature and humidity and how they're formed. And there's a section where you get to read a story 
story about how a snow crystal is formed. And then there are snow crystals you can actually match to that story. When you get the right one, it plays a little music and lights up. And so it's a really fun interactive experience. One of my other favorites that makes the exhibit great for all ages um, is there's a snow play area. And in that you can build and design your own snow people with all of these big fun play elements. Um, there's snow crystal making sections. And then it actually walks you all the way through to melting snow. So there's a really cool map interactive that shows the mountain west um, and where all of the water and snow melt within the Colorado River Basin ends up. Um, so that's pretty yeah. exciting. Yeah, so fun for all ages then. Yeah, like great for everyone. Lots of text if you want to read. If you don't want to read and you just want to do hands-on things, there's an opportunity for that at every section. Yeah, so what do you hope people get from it? I hope that people leave um, really realizing the broad impacts that snow have on our lives, on our ecosystem. We depend very heavily on snowpack here in Utah, and so my hope is that we get to learn a little bit more about snowpack and better understand snowpack so that people leave wanting to protect our watershed and our snowpack and um, with some new fun information about snow to share with their friends and others. Okay. The exhibit's open until May 5th. How much is it? To it's $8 for adults, $5 for kids, but we want to make sure that cost is not a barrier to access for this exhibit. Um, so we do have some free days throughout the run, and then we also are offering free tickets. Um, so if you feel like cost is a barrier and you, you aren't able to attend a free day, um, you can go onto our website and there's an opportunity to request free tickets if, if you feel like cost is a barrier for you. Um, what and, are, oh, what are those free admission days? Do you have those? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. They are Wednesday, February 21st, mm -hmm. Friday, March 22nd, and Saturday, April 27th. And we just had our first free day of the exhibit last weekend and had a great turnout. Okay. Um, let's see. And school field trips, do you, do you bring in Yep. School? So every school that comes on a field trip at Swanner will go into the exhibit as part of their field trip. Usually our field trips are split up into three sections and we divide the groups and rotate through. Um, and so one of those is within the snow exhibit. So all field trips will have a chance to explore. Yeah. Um, how many groups of field trips do you get? Any That's idea? actually a great question that I don't know for sure, but I would say we're seeing anywhere from three to five groups a week. Oh, wow. Okay. And what, from all over? From all over, yep. We serve mostly fourth and uh, first and fourth grade, although we do homeschool field trips and other grades as well. All right. And folks just need to, school officials need to just reach out yep, to you. Yep. You can mm -hmm. just reach out to our education director, Catherine. Her info is on our website at swannerecocenter.org uh, to book a field trip. And I know that we're, we're actually, I think we're fairly booked for most of the season, which is exciting. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want people to know about the exhibit? Yeah. In addition to the exhibit, we're doing a lot of events and activities within the community that go along with the snow theme. So we want to provide as many opportunities to learn as possible. So we're doing a lot with the Park City Library. Um, we have a recommended reading list from them. We're doing a Winterfest Snowcraft acti activity on February 9th preschool story time on March 7th. And then we're also doing a film screening in partnership with both the library and Wasatch Backcountry Rescue um, of a film called Superpower Dogs. And they actually talk about avalanche dogs in that film and dogs that help us to um, stay as safe as possible. And then we'll have a meet and greet with um, some avalanche dogs from our local resorts after that. Okay, when's that happening? That one is on March 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. And then in addition to that, we have snow activity kits that can be borrowed at the Eco Center. Um, we're doing a story walk with the Summit County Library outside of the Eco Center. We're doing moonlight snowshoe tours, our Saturday morning snowshoe tours. And then we also have local organizations tabling within the exhibit every Friday and Saturday. 
Okay. Um, what's the status of finding um, the replacement for former director Nell Larson? Yeah, so we, our search committee is through the university, so we're owned by Utah State University, um, and the search committee is in the process of um, reviewing and hiring um, applicants. So the, the hope is that by end of February, beginning of March, we'll, we'll have someone in place. Okay. Any idea how many people applied for the position? I don't know how many people applied. I know we had a lot of great applicants, um, and I think they're narrowing down that process now, and, and hopefully we'll have someone soon. Okay. Anything else, Hunter? I think that's it. Thank oh. you so much, Leslie. Thank you. And it's Hunter Klingensmith, serves as Director of Exhibits and Visitor Experience there at the Swana Preserve and Eco Center. Well, animal rights nonprofit Save People, Save Wildlife, looking to expand fencing and to add wildlife crossings to State Route 224 before it's widened for bus rapid transit lanes in a few years. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports the activists' potential partners have other priorities. Save People, Save Wildlife has long attempted to eliminate vehicle animal collisions on 224, pushing for the reduced 45 miles an hour speed limit and installing reflective animal silhouettes along the corridor. Now 224 will be widened to include dedicated bus lanes in 2027, and wildlife advocates want to make sure that doesn't increase collisions. But it looks unlikely they'll get additional fencing or wildlife crossings before then. The wildlife group met with High Valley Transit, which is spearheading the bus rapid transit project late last year. Save People Save Wildlife President Erin Ferguson says her organization hoped to get donations and grants to add wildlife protections the same time the road gets widened. She says High Valley, quote, wasn't receptive. High Valley Executive Director Caroline Rodriguez wasn't able to comment for this report, but she told the Park City Council two weeks ago they're deferring to wildlife experts for a holistic solution. We do things on our own right now. For example, our drivers have specific training. We have whistles on the vehicle. Rodriguez would prefer Utah's Division of Wildlife Resources make the call on wildlife mitigations. All the data she's seen does not indicate 224 is a wildlife migration corridor. Still, she says High Valley meets with the local and state governments regularly to discuss solutions. The consensus so far is a solution is needed across the entire 224 corridor. If we wanted to put an underpass from an engineering standpoint, we would need to raise 224 corridor wide. So Save People Save Wildlife has turned to the Utah Department of Transportation, raising the issue at its monthly meeting Tuesday. Ferguson says right now UDOT is more focused on public safety than wildlife. But that was an honest answer, which is very much appreciated. UDOT Region 2 spokesperson Kyler Sharp says the wildlife group is a partner and Tuesday's meeting focused on 224 maintenance. Despite the lower state priority, Ferguson said she learned UDOT's project planner is working on possible locations for wildlife crossings. Ferguson stresses her organization is neutral on the issue of whether to widen the road. She says advocates see it as an opportunity to increase wildlife connectivity. The 224 bus rapid transit expansion was originally scheduled to launch next year. It's since been delayed two years to 2027. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Well, Summit County commuters may have noticed a 101 bus with a large cloud behind it on State Route 224 yesterday morning. It wasn't smoke, but rather steam. One of High Valley Transit's buses pulled into Canyons Village smoking as if it were on fire. High Valley Executive Director Caroline Rodriguez tells KPCW, though, that was just steam. She says the idler pulley, which guides the serpentine belt, froze. The belt allows a vehicle engine to power secondary devices like its air conditioning and water pump. In this case, the belt broke when the pulley froze, which meant that the engine couldn't circulate coolant and the bus overheated. According to Rodriguez, the bus returned to Ecker Hill Middle School for High Valley technicians to 
repair. Well, the final count is in for Save Wasatch Back Dark Sky's efforts to put a referendum on the ballot. KPCW's Grace Dorfler has details on the group's next steps. Wasatch County released the official number of ballot signatures the group gathered Tuesday night, 2,402. That's about 850 short of the requirement to put a local referendum on the ballot. The group had 45 days to chase that goal. Members say they persevered through winter storms, illness, ice, and the hectic holiday season to gather signatures. If successful, the referendum would have asked voters to weigh in on whether to keep the Huber Valley Temple Development Agreement approved last year. Now, the group says it will pursue other efforts to protect dark skies in the Wasatch Back. Two lawsuits, one challenging the county's outdoor lighting ordinance and one fighting the Temple Development Agreement, are still pending. Also, Save Wasatch Back Dark Skies spokesperson Lisa Bayhash is running for a seat on the Wasatch County Council. Dark Skies group members do not answer repeated requests for comment. Others are pleased the referendum won't make it to the ballot. Wasatch County Council member Luke Searle believes it shows most residents agree with the temple approval process. I feel like it's a victory for religious freedom. People of our county support those values and our constitutional freedoms by not having signed. He says voters elected the council to make decisions for the county and the temple approval process played out as it should have. Ultimately, due process and the law were the basis of the decision that we approved in the legislative development agreement. People's voices were heard. The county council unanimously approved the proposed temple November 8th. The 88,000-square-foot temple is planned for an 18-acre site just outside the Heber City boundary. It's expected to be 210 feet tall at its highest point. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. Well, the Park City Council will discuss a proposed 10% water rate increase for its new fiscal year budget. Today, KPCW's Parker Malatesta has more about that. Under Utah law, Park City's water service is defined as an enterprise fund, which means it has to pay for itself. A staff report for Thursday's Park City Council meeting says the water department needs $2 million in new revenue to maintain existing services and complete capital projects which include the new $110 million Three Kings water treatment plant. Park City Manager Matt Dias says a 10% water rate increase for customers may be necessary to capture that revenue. I think, unfortunately, it's a confluence of factors. You know, it, it's, it's no mistake what's occurred through inflation and construction, supplies, equipment, and the difficulty um, obtaining the labor necessary to support the system. But we also have the Main Street project that's coming online that was relatively unexpected. The Main Street project will be a multi-year effort to replace aging water lines in Old Town. The bulk of the work will be done during shoulder seasons. We understand that no one wants this water increase for next year. We obviously have an obligation to um, responsibly administer the system and protect public health and safety in the drinking water. And so we're coming in probably 60 to 90 days earlier than we normally would when talking about the rate structure. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we're trying to be very transparent and allow the mayor and council adequate time to contemplate any alternatives or any other adjustments or additional ways to generate revenue that they might want us to explore. Other revenue options could include increasing rates for the municipal golf course. On Thursday, the council will also discuss a proposed fee increase for law enforcement during special events, an ordinance that would prohibit nightly rentals in the Bald Eagle Club in Upper Deer Valley is up for a vote. The ban was unanimously supported by the City Planning Commission. The council could also approve contracts to purchase seven new electric buses and an electric trolley specially manufactured for Main Street. 
Dias will end Thursday's meeting with an update on bills in the Utah legislature. City Council chambers open to the public at 3.45 p.m. Thursday at the Marsac building. The agenda and a link to attend virtually can be found at kpcw.org. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. Well, Women's Inspired Network is a place to connect without competitive pressure to inspire and be inspired as well as support the community by raising money for high school scholarships. Kirsten Gunnarud is the organization's new director. She joins me in studio, also joined by outgoing director Kathleen Barlow on the phone. Good morning, ladies. Morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us, Leslie. Yeah, so let's start with you, Kathleen. I believe you were one of those... Um, original members of the Park City Women's Business Network. I think it was originally founded by Rosemary Kelly back in the 1990s. And then what? We, yeah. cha we changed the name to Win a few years ago? Yeah. Yeah. About five years ago, we decided to do a little bit of rebranding and uh, making some changes. And that's how we came up with Women's Inspired Network. Okay. It looks like that could be a, an international organization or is it just other communities use the same? No, there is, so there is one other community that's women inspire network in Ireland. Okay. <laughs> um, but so it's a very similar name, but we're not connected right now. <laughs> All right. So tell us what is the organization? Who's it made for? What do you guys do? So it's really made for the women in our community. We want to have a space continually for women in business to get together and share and support each other um, and, you know, kind of help and be part of a, a community. So is it specifically then for business owners? No, not necessarily business owners, Leslie. It's really anybody, any woman working. We've ha we have members that work for the city. We have members that work for some of the resorts. We have members that work for an accounting agency. And we have members who own their own businesses. Okay. Um, and then what do you, in terms of what you do, what do you do? Mm. So we are re-emerging right now. We took a little bit of a hiatus and we are um, coming back and our main focus is our monthly meetings. So we have meetings once a month, first Tuesday of every month, that we bring these women together and we have speakers. We have um, things that we do within the event that helps them connect with each other. We also do some fundraising efforts for our college scholarships for girls at the high school. Okay. So, uh, Kirsten, then you have been named as the new director? Yes. All right. Yes. So what are your goals then for the organization? My goal is to take everything that already made Win great and people, the women in this community absolutely love Win. Um, we did a survey and the passion for it, the desire for it to keep on, on going was immense. So it's taking that and just doubling down on it. How can we deepen how we help women connect? How can we make inspiration something that we can take action with? How can we grow together in even more powerful ways? All right. So um, as Kathleen mentioned, you are ready to kind of relaunch this. You've got uh, an event coming up next week. Tell next us about that. Next week, yeah. So we're um, doing it at Shamanic Twist. Tickets are already almost sold out. They're available on Eventbrite, but I think we maybe only have like three left. 
And um, it will be a lot of time just really focusing on connecting and reconnecting in this first first event and letting people know where Wynn is headed and, and what were all the exciting things we have in store for 24. Okay, so um, what I guess what, what will happen? I mean, is it just basically a networking event? We are, I think, the antidote to typical networking events. So um, it is all about coming in. We have really unique ways for people to connect. So whether you're introverted or extroverted, make it easy um, and comfortable for people to do that. And um, it is really about how we interact Kathleen had at one point really been inspired with the red tent and so much of what we do, the book about the red tent, so much of what we do is just about gathering women and giving women an opportunity to share their voice, share their unique selves and bring that, you know, to the table. Um, so we'll, yeah, we'll be connecting. We'll be sharing all the things that are going on. We'll be doing some fun activities together to just learn and hear each other's stories a little bit, have sharing some wonderful food and wine and uh, yeah, hopefully raising money for our high school scholarship. We have, because we're just re-emerging, we only have about three months to raise money and we really want to support all four high schools in our local area. So um, that's an important piece too. Mm, okay, so how, how are you gonna raise the money for that? Just We uh, raise money through um, some of our sponsorships. We raise money through raffles. So we have awesome things that people contribute and we have a raffle at our events so people can win those wonderful things from local businesses and and things like that is there any other way kathleen right now that we're raising yeah, so we uh, some of our membership dollars also go yeah. so it, it is it, it is a membership community so memberships are currently 125 dollars a year which gets them into the 12 meetings um and i would say 60 percent of that those dollars go to our scholarship fund. We will be increasing the membership um, for 24, I don't know, somewhere 150, 175. We're not sure where that number is going to end up yet. Okay. Um, and then how many members do you have? Any idea at this point? We go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we have with our, our hiatus, we have about 40 people who are still members and then a whole lot of people who are wondering when they can get their membership back. So what what is the max that we've had in the past, Kathleen? So um, prior to COVID in our heyday, we had 250 active members mm -hmm. and we would have 60 to 65 women coming to the monthly meetings. So we're looking forward to going back to that and beating that. Beating that, yeah. We have a mm -hmm. list of over 400 on our social. We have almost 2,000 people following. So there's a lot of interest. Okay, um, and people can then join um, online then? They will be able to join online um, very soon and uh, be able to join at the meeting on, on Tuesday. Okay. Um, again, you mentioned you'd have to search Eventbrite then to get to the... To get to the meeting, Eventbrite, we do have a web page up right now that isn't completed and we're still working on, but you can also get a link through that. 
which oh. is winparkcity.com. Okay. Um, and you mentioned it's at Shamanic Twist there in Camas, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So February 6th. So what time? And uh, 6 to 8 p.m. Okay. And then uh, is there a cost to that? It is $25. Yes. All right. Unless you're a member, then you would actually. Yes. Okay. And basically that's what the membership done does pay for these. It pays for your event. It pays uh, for things we do outside of the event. And as Kathleen mentioned, a portion of it goes towards scholarships. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anything else you wanted to let us know about it? Just please, if, it, if this resonates, come join us. Check us out. If you have any questions, um, please get in touch. Kathleen, anything from you? Um, no, just looking forward to uh, seeing everybody next week. Yeah. Okay. Kathleen Barlow and Kirsten Gunnarud, thanks so much for your Thank time this you. morning. Thank you. Thanks, Leslie. Well, the private equity firm that owns Deer Valley Resort and Icon Pass recently brought in new investors. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports. In 2017, KSL Capital Partners formed Altera Mountain Company through a joint venture with Henry Crown and Company, which owns Aspen Skiing Company. The firm now has a portfolio that includes Deer Valley, Solitude, Steamboat, and Palisades Tahoe. It's also the distributor of the Icon Pass, which offers access to over 50 resorts worldwide. KSL Capital announced this week it raised $3 billion as part of a continuation fund for Altera Mountain Company. Axios reports the proceeds will be used to continue building out existing properties, including hotels and villages, plus possible property acquisitions. KSL Capital CEO Eric Resnick said the transaction allows them, quote, to provide a significant return of capital to those existing investors who desired liquidity while welcoming a new set of investors who share our excitement about the future of Altera. The investors include a diverse group of state and county pension funds, corporate pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, and insurance companies. Park City is the site of one of the company's major development efforts, along with more than doubling terrain and expanding to a new base area along U.S. Highway 40, Deer Valley is also working to develop a new village at its existing snow park base. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. The newly launched Utah Transparency Project shines a light on legislative proposals that impact government transparency and accountability. The new project keeps it simple. When proposed legislation could affect the public's right to know, the project will give the bill an up or down rating. Bills that increase access will get a green open door rating. Those that decrease public access will get a red lockdown rating. Attorney Michael Judd says the new project is in the effort of the Utah Media Coalition, which is made up of Utah newspapers, websites, and TV and radio stations. The transparency project, he says, is an update of an earlier effort called Grandma Watch, which came about because of a legislative attempt to curtail the state's open records and meeting laws some 13 years ago. The Government Record Access and Management Act, known as Grandma, was first adopted more than 30 years ago. It established classifications of records and set out an appeals process that allows people to petition the government for access to protected information. In 2011, Judd said there was an ill-fated attempt effort by the Utah legislature to change the law, severely limiting public records access by exempting electronic communications of lawmakers. It caused such a public uprising that even though the law was passed within a matter of days, the legislature repealed it. With that concern in mind, the rules about what the public could know about governmental processes could suddenly be changed. 
the Utah Media Coalition decided it was important to keep track of what was going on up there at the Hill so that we could let the public know what was changing and what may happen during that legislative session that would change the public's ability to access information about the way the government does the public's work. One bill that's been given the open door rating is a bill that would expand certain kinds of access to the state's sex offender website that would allow people to search not only by a name, but also with a phone number. If you uh, found a, a child who was texting a phone number that you didn't know who it was, you could search that website. That, for example, would give the public more information about what was going on. A closed door rating was given to a bill that proposes changes to the Utah Public Meetings Act. It would make fewer discussions between lawmakers available to the public. We do know in the past that this type of effort has often been successful. That when members of the public unite and let their legislators know uh, we are not okay with any sort of change. I mean, this is a uniquely bipartisan issue, right? Wherever someone is on the political spectrum, everyone shares the belief that they would like to be able to know what politicians and governmental entities are doing, supposedly on their behalf. Utah reporters are the ones monitoring the bills and flagging them for a possible ranking. The public can follow along on the social media app X by searching at UT Transparency.